welcome leaders for equity, allyship, and diversity. If you did not guess it before, yes, that does spell lead, L-E-A-D. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast. If you're frustrated, saddened, bewildered, disgusted, or feeling any other range of emotions due to the hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone and you've come to the right place. A group of awesome leaders banded together to do something about this and we have formed the group LEAD. We are hosting weekly events to allow leaders to come together to learn, discuss, share, activate, and empower to make a difference in this world. What you're about to listen to is some discussion from this meeting and a presentation by the incredible Jonathan Mahan on how to have difficult conversations and how to engage with people whose views make you angry. If you want to learn more and be empowered to act, you'll have to join us next week live. We meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Listen to the end to get more details on how you can participate and join us. So get ready to come together and lead. Let's dive on in. I'm going to go ahead and get started and open us up. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to LEAD, Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity. So for those who are new to the group, let's give you a little background on LEAD. LEAD's purpose intends to engage participants in respectful, enlightening, and inspiring dialogues and interactions that advance positive culture transformation on an organizational community and global scale. We earnestly believe that this inspires action, right? And empowers all to make a positive difference on an individual level and society. I am Ivana Paulson. I am one of the founding members of LEAD, along with Sajel Thacker, Sarah Phelps, uh, Christopher uh, Lynn, and John Carlson. So welcome, 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 everyone. I just want to run through just a few house rules to get us started. Um, let's have civility guiding all of our engagements, okay, everybody? Please respect and embrace the differences of our opinions and perspectives and create a safe space, right? For vulnerability, transparent dialogue, um, which really requires empathy and absolute discretion. So people are sharing some of their innermost feelings and thoughts here today. So we wanna make sure that we keep this a safe space and we keep the dialogue right here um, for the most part with the personal items. But um, before I introduce tonight's amazing speaker, John Mahan, we're gonna kick it off with a quick little icebreaker. So it's directly tied to the subject matter tonight. Given where the temperature of our society is, we have likely all seen the crazy comments on social media that absolutely just infuriate us, right? You see these posts and you're like, oh, what are you talking about? You're screaming at the screen. You might be shaking it and gotta walk away, blow off some steam, right? So what we wanna know is dropping some comments in the chat let us know if you've engaged with another person in this very nice, cool, calm, collected, very zen manner, or if at some point in the back and forth, you lost your cool and you just shredded off, right? Like you just had enough, you fired back, shots fired, that's the way it went down. So in the chat, I want to see right now, give us a little context. Somebody said X and I responded Y. Let's see what we got going on here. All right, someone spoke about the white experience on a black post, interesting. Okay, Stacy. currently live in a white Republican household as a black gay male, so my behavior has to be of the utmost emotional intelligence, nice. 
All right, Stacey, you started with curiosity, but where'd you go, girlfriend? After the curiosity killed the cat, where'd you go? Did you stay curious and relax or did you, you know, take a flamethrower to the keyboard? <laughs> and they were vexed when I got to white supremacy. Okay, conservatives do this, liberals do that. I didn't respond, but I was angry at the stereotype. Yeah, I'm sure. I feel stupid is true. And I responded, feelings aren't facts. Very good. Very good. All right. Oh, three-hour conversation with a Trump supporter. Okay. Ooh. I was triggered many times. I had to swallow my reaction. I was exhausted afterwards. Yeah, I can I can attest to that. Been there. Been there many, many times. I How watched that conversation with, uh, with, with Jeff and that Trump supporter and he did wonderfully and, and, and she did as well, right? She, uh, you know, they were yeah. both very good to each other, but like, oh, <laughs> to hear the other, the other person's viewpoints and perspectives sometimes like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't like take a board out of his desk and just start hitting his head against it at times. <laughs> and, and I'm sure his, you know, co-host probably felt the same way at times, right? About things he was saying. So yeah, that yeah. was a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. So we've all been there, right? So thank you everyone for sharing. Um, that was great. So I'm going to jump into because time is of the essence and I am just itching in my chair to get to this amazing human being and champion of racial equity, John Mahan. Tonight, we are embarking on difficult conversations, how to engage people whose views make you angry. So I will say that I have known John for a couple of months now. I actually met him. I was on a session that he did with um, Jared Carroll and um, it was on vulnerability and racism. And it was an absolutely amazing discussion, learned a lot. Um, so we're really excited to bring uh, John to the virtual lead stage. So just a little bit of background on John. Um, in his day job, he is a sales professional in Colorado. But uh, in his uh, spare time, he is a deep thinker and recently started contemplating the realities of racism and his desire, if not responsibility, to eradicate it. And since June, he's been addressing topics around racial inequalities and injustice on social channels and taking to the microphone in November, he started the Courageous Conversations, both a podcast and a vodcast that you can find on YouTube where he has some tough conversations with people that he strongly disagrees with. I salute you, sir, for that one. Uh, <laughs> tonight, he will be sharing with us some of what he's learned and how to keep your cool and goals in mind when tackling tough topics with those who tick us off. So get ready on your keyboards, on your tablets, get your pen and paper, people. John's gonna provide some great insights, tips and tactics that you'll wanna remember. Be sure to put your questions in the chat as he's talking, because we want to make sure that we get those, uh, get to those before we end today. So without further ado, welcome to the lead virtual stage, my friend, amazing DEI champion, John Mahan. Man, with that, uh, with that intro, I feel like I've got big shoes to fill now. <laughs> All right. So um, there is a fair amount to cover, so I'll kind of jump into it. Um, the first part of, you know, what I'll share with you today is really why this is so important.
important because I think, you know, it'll be hard to muster the resolve to power through some of these difficult conversations if you don't recognize just how important it is. So that'll be the first, you know, half of what I share. And the second half of what I share, I'll talk about just some techniques, some tips, tricks, whatever you want to call it that I found that have helped me get through some of these difficult conversations that I've had, you know, in the last few months. So I'll start off with a couple of seemingly unrelated points that, that come together nicely. Um, one thing that's really important to recognize is that everyone is the good guy in their own narrative. Even the people that we think are pretty easily bad guys, they see themselves as the good guy, right? You know, modern day jihadists see themselves very much as the Luke Skywalker of their story and the people they're against as the empire, right? The folks who stormed the Capitol absolutely are the good guys in their own narrative because in their worldview, things that happened made what they did justified and necessary and they're sacrificing, right? Again, not saying any of this is correct, but saying even people that we see as clearly obviously bad guys are the good guys in their own narrative. And it's important for us to get to the point where we can understand how they see that because you can't really engage with someone and you especially can never change someone's mind without first understanding how they got to the point where they see themselves as a good guy. So one of the things that's really interesting about extremism, and again, you know, this conversation uh, is mostly talk about more mundane cases, but sometimes it's good to look to the extremes. One of the things that's interesting about extremism is that a lot of extremism takes advantage of the best aspects of human nature and corrupts them and co-ops them to get people to do evil things. As hard as it is to believe, you know, my brother-in-law who joined the military right after 9-11 out of sense of duty and sacrifice and love for his country and for people and willing to sacrifice himself for the good of you know, others he loved. That's the same base human motivator that drives jihadists to do what they do, that drove Dylan Roof to murder a church full of black people in South Carolina in 2015. Like some of the most horrendous acts human beings have ever committed have actually been committed using the mechanism which is designing human beings for good, right? So you gotta ask yourself the question, how do you get to the point, right? where you're, you're at this extreme, that good aspects of your nature get co-opted for evil. To answer this, I'll bring up another concept. Um, you know, we've all heard the expression, right? Two sides of the same coin. And this kind of, you know, presents to us this idea that, you know, there can be two opposing truths that are actually both true at the same time. And depending on how you look at this coin, you'll see different sides of it. And I think that's a really good concept. Of course, the problem is that reality is far more complicated than a two-sided coin, right? Reality is, a massive diamond with a thousand different facets, right? Different surfaces. And depending on where the light source is and, and how you're angling it, you know, a different facet of that diamond will reflect light back to you and, and catch your attention. But it's the same idea, right? That reality is complicated and that this can be true and this can be true and this can be true all at the same time. There are many facets to this diamond that is reality. And extremism, extremist views tend to come from only looking and fixating at one side of that diamond. And to the point where you don't even realize there is more diamond, you think you're seeing the whole thing. And extremist actions tend to come when you take that person who's only focused on one side of the diamond and you feed them lies, misinformation, you give them to misplace their fears. That's how you take someone into real extremist action. But extremist views come from only fixating on one aspect of reality, one small sliver of truth and ignoring the rest. So then the question becomes, how do we get to the point where we are only looking at one facet of this diamond and we think we got the whole picture, right? And to answer this, I'll kind of tell a real short story here. So in 2016, there's two men. One lives in West Virginia, one lives in Montana. Both of these men share the same common values, priorities, beliefs about right and wrong, et cetera. 
They also both share the same view on Donald Trump. They both think he is not to be trusted. He's a social elite using the presidency for his own personal gain. He's an emotionally damaged child. They share the same views. In 2020, those same two men could not be further apart. One thinks Donald Trump is the second coming of Adolf Hitler. The other thinks Donald Trump is a good Christian man who can be trusted and was the best president we've had in a long time. What happened in four years, right? Well, I was the man from West Virginia. I'm in Colorado now, but I was the man from West Virginia. My friend Jeremy um, was the man from Montana. And actually, I had him on my podcast a week after the election to talk about Trump because he is a strong Trump supporter and still is. And our values hadn't changed. But what was different was that for the last four years, I've been following liberal news sources and liberal voices and liberal Facebook pages and liberal friends and liberal community groups. And the only side of the diamond I've been exposed to is Trump's evil side. And every time he messed up, I knew about it. And every time he did something wrong, I knew about it, right? Jeremy, on the other hand, follows conservative Christian Facebook pages, news sources, groups, and friends. And the only side of the diamond he ever saw was every time Trump did something right. Every time Trump made good on his word, every time Trump helped out, that's what he saw. So over the course of these four years, I went further and further to my existing viewpoint because I was only being shown the side of the diamond that I was already familiar with, where Jeremy actually changed his viewpoint because he was consistently fed a diet of the other side of reality um, and that changed his view. So these echo chambers is what I call it in social media, right? Each one of us in social media has the power to choose what we see. And that's dangerous because when we get to choose what we see, we get to choose basically the world that we live in, right? And we get to make it a world that we like. And the world then suddenly has to conform to the way we like, because again, if we see a news source we don't like, we block them. We hear someone sharing an opinion we don't like, we block them. And we get this point where we are routinely only looking at one side of the diamond. And from my perspective, the more scary thing, although of course, from another perspective, it would be different. But from my perspective, the most scary thing is people on the political right are in the same situation where they're only being shown one side of reality. And when you're constantly showed confirming evidence over and over and over again, you get more and more confident that you're right and that you have the monopoly on truth and that you actually do see the whole diamond. You're not missing anything, right? And we suddenly get in a society where both groups are doing that and growing further and further apart because they live in entirely different worlds. And these echo chambers are dangerous, okay? Mentioned briefly Dylan Roof, right? He's the man who murdered uh, like 10 people at a black Bible study in South Carolina. In 2014, he was a pretty average albeit a little bit disturbed, lower-class white guy with not many friends, family, or connections. And then he joined a website called Stormfront, which is you know social media, or maybe you can call it Reddit for white supremacists, neo-Nazis, white nationalists. And in eight months of being on Stormfront, he went from a pretty regular guy to someone committing cold-blooded murder, thinking he was a martyr and helping the world. Eight months of that echo chamber that is Stormfront is all it took to take him to those levels of extreme. So these echo chambers are dangerous, right? And they're dangerous for everyone. You know, being a leftist, I'm very well aware of when the, the, the right steps out of line. So a lot of my examples are there, but truthfully, no one's above this, right? You could have people on the left doing atrocious things too because of these echo chambers when you only see one side of reality and truth. And these echo chambers are caused by this cancel culture or this block culture, this idea that when I'm online and I see something that makes me angry, the best course of action is for me to remove that thing so it's no longer part of my online experience. And while there may be cases where that is necessary, the wholesale adoption of that strategy as a way to handle conflict has led us to a really bad place because that's where these echo chambers are coming from. And the antidote to these echo chambers that tempt people to slide into extremism is difficult conversations with people whose views make you angry. 
difficult conversations that are respectful, that are empathetic, that are patients, right? Led by patients. This is the antidote because otherwise people can easily slip further and further into extremism. And it's very important that these conversations that are happening happen in a way that is empathetic because if these conversations are debate, if they are full of insult, if they're full of accusation and distaste and disgust, then all that really does is drive people further into the arms of those extremists who would love to have them join their side, right? All it does is convince people that those folks on the other side, I don't want to deal with them. They're somehow, you know, undesirable, inhuman. And what's nice, I guess, about this is that you don't actually have to change people's minds for this to be effective. Just having these conversations, giving them a positive experience of talking to you helps keep them away from extremism. Just sowing seeds of doubt in their mind may be enough that one day they will change their views on something. And again, even if they never change their views, if through having other perspectives shared with them or for having an ongoing relationship with someone who disagrees with them, that can be enough to keep them from sliding further into extremism, right? Because truthfully, you know, a lot of, you know, there's, there's only so much damage people do who are kind of in the middle and disagree with us. It's the extremists who cause the real damage and the real harm. That's what we want to avoid. And if you can build relationships with people who are a little bit more in the middle, you can help anchor them and kind of tether them to reality. Now, before we move on to how to do this, I do want to share um, something kind of important to bring up. What I'm asking and suggesting, right? Engaging with patients, kindness, empathy, compassion with people who don't deserve it, who aren't showing it to you, it's really freaking hard. And it's infinitely harder when you're personally a victim of the hateful ideology that's being spread and shared, right? So I don't think we can ask and expect those of us who are personally affected by some of these things to always fill this role, right? So if you're a trans person, I don't expect you to always engage with transphobic people with patients, kindness, empathy, and compassion, right? You're a black person dealing with a racist, same idea. Your emotional, psychological safety, and in extreme cases, your physical safety can be at risk. Now, if you can manage it, it is hugely powerful. Um, there's a man who has an amazing book, Christian Picciolini. He helps people leave extremist movements and has done a lot of work with the American right. And sometimes the thing that helps shake them up and make them change their minds and shift their worldviews is just having friendships and relationships with these people that they hate, right? But that's probably the best example of this is actually Daryl Davis. He's a man who um, for the last, I don't know, 30 years has been going to KKK rallies. He's a black man who's been going to KKK rallies, befriending KKK members. And like 200 of them have handed in their cloaks to him and left the movement just because the relationship with him was enough to unsettle them enough to help their eyes open. However, this cannot be really expected, right? That is like an insane level of ability and commitment. So for those of you who are not personally affected and don't have trauma tied up around the issue at hand, I think the burden is even heavier on us to be the ones to show up with kindness, patience, empathy, and compassion, right? Using racism as an example, you know, if someone's gonna lose their shit on a racist person and tell them exactly how it is, that's not my place. Because someone, in order to open this person's eyes, is going to have to play the role of that patient, compassionate person. And if I push it off and say, nope, that's not gonna be me, and I take the punching Nazis route, then either they're never gonna change, which by the way, who pays the price when white supremacists don't change their views? It's not me right? So I don't think I have the right to push that off. Or alternately, it's going to be, have to be a person of color who actually plays that role of being the patient kind of a thick person who opens their eyes. Again, that doesn't sit well with me. That I, as a white person without trauma, decided, no, nah, I don't want to deal with this person. I made a person of color deal with them. I want to hell with that. So 
if you are someone who is not affected by the issue at hand, right? So, and again, you know, I use the issue of race, right? But you could be a cisgender black person talking to someone who's transphobic, right? You could be, you know, an African-American talking to someone who's anti-Semitic. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can get involved and have these conversations when you aren't personally affected by the trauma. So that's enough about why it's so important. Now I'll transition into how to do this well, because this is very difficult. Um, first few you know, tips here, I'm gonna have kind of on the preparation side of things. So either like when you first see that initial comment or maybe even before, right? You head into a difficult conversation. There's some things you can do to prepare in advance. The very first thing I suggest you do is you take a moment in your mind to humanize the person you're gonna be engaging with. Now you can do something extreme. Like um, before I had my conversation with Jeremy Nachik about Donald Trump right after the election, I knew it was gonna be a hard conversation. So I literally spent 10 minutes going through his Facebook page, looking at every picture he'd ever posted of himself, his friends, his family, his kids, his dogs, his house, his car, really connecting with the fact that this is a human being in front of me. But it doesn't have to be that extreme, right? You can just run into someone on LinkedIn and just take a brief moment to pause and say, okay, this is a person, a human being just like me. He's probably got a mother who loves him and maybe a romantic partner who loves him, probably friends who love him. Though there's a lot bad about him, there's a lot good and it doesn't matter because he's a human being, right? Five seconds in your head to think those thoughts and then move on. Because I'm telling you, it's so easy to dehumanize from a leftist perspective, dehumanize, dehumanize people on the right, to think of them as just racist, ignorant, arrogant, small-minded, bigoted, like even some of the language we use, right? We aren't even talking to them as people, right? We call them Trump supporters. The most recent term I've seen is maggots, right? MAGA with a T, right? We call Donald Trump the Cheeto, right? Dehumanization is so, so appealing and so easy to slip into, but dehumanization is the stepping stone to every horrible act human beings have ever committed. And you got to stay away from dehumanization if you're going to do this work. So take a second to dehumanize or to humanize the person you'll be talking to. Um, next thing is you want to shift your focus a little bit because a lot of people come to these conversations and kind of the lens they're looking at through is what's fair, what's right, what's justice. And they feel like these people deserve to be called out and attacked. They're doing awful, terrible things. They deserve this. So I'm going to give it to them. Right. And truthfully, that's may be true. Right. But if you're going to engage in this work, you need to shift your mindset to what kind of impact do I have on these people? Because the reality is giving someone what they deserve rarely changes anyone. And it's going to leave them exactly where they are, or it's actually going to drive them further into the arms of extremists, right? They're going to drop their Facebook page because they're getting frustrated with all the liberals on their Facebook page, and then go start a parlor. And then they'll get on parlor for a while, and then they'll go join Stormfront, right? So focus on the impact you want to have over what you think is fair, what is right. And there's three levels of impact that I've really noticed that I can have in a conversation. The first one is almost entirely in my control, and it should be your goal every single time. And that is to give the other person a positive experience of interacting with you. And there's two reasons for that. When you give a positive experience of interacting with you, it's really hard for them to dehumanize you and dehumanize your group, right? Because they have that relationship with you. And secondly, because for them to avoid slipping into extremism, they really need to have a steady diet of interactions with people with the opposing view. And if every interaction they have with some of the opposing view is a negative one, they're just not going to do it anymore. Again, they're going to cancel their Facebook page and go start a parlor page, right? Parlor would not exist, by the way, if people on the left were good at what we're talking about today. There would be no need for it. People on the right would feel safe on Facebook to have conversations and, you know, et cetera. So when you're battling extremism and extremist views, it's very important you give the other side a positive experience of interacting with you. So they're more likely to repeat that because it's only through a repeated exposure to 
opposing views that they're ever either going to change their mind or at the very least be tethered to reality so they don't slip further into extremism. The second level of impact you might have is you might plant seeds of doubt. So they're not gonna tell you in that conversation, you're right, I'm wrong, but something you say will stick with them. It'll make them wonder, it'll make them think, it'll make them pause, right? Sometimes that's from sharing evidence and facts that fly in the face of their worldview, right? That's kind of turning the diamond so they can see another piece of the truth they've never seen before. Sometimes it's even just through questions, right? Megan Phelps Roper was like one of the, you know, the voices of the Westboro Baptist Church. And what helped turn her around and help her see the light was some of the questions people on Twitter asked her that she couldn't answer, things she'd never thought of before, inconsistencies in her church's beliefs that made her realize, you know, what was going on. So seeds of doubt. Right. And again, you'll never really know when those have successfully been planted. You just do your best. And the third level of impact, of course, is you could actually get them to change their mind on something. But typically that doesn't happen on the first time. That usually is something that maybe takes repeated events. So don't get discouraged when you don't hit that third level of impact and they don't change their mind. That doesn't mean this was a waste, right? You can still accomplish your first two objectives. And even the worst of conversations, you can usually accomplish your first objective of giving them a positive experience. Uh, next one is a trick for controlling emotions because you can get really freaking angry doing this. Like the shit people say, I'm telling you, man, it's easy to get angry. Um, this is actually kind of reversing a trick that nonprofits use. So nonprofits learned a long time ago when you're campaigning, you don't zoom out and capture the whole problem. You don't say 300,000 people died in Tanzania last year. We know that's bad. We care, but it doesn't really tug on our heartstrings and we generally don't give as much money. Right? Nonprofits learned, don't globalize the problem. Zone in, zoom in on an individual person, individualize and personalize the problem, right? And show a picture of a single child who loves soccer and has a pet dog and three sisters and wants to be a teacher when she grows up and you know may die of starvation if we don't do something, right? That is what really tugs on people's heartstrings. So reverse that. Pull yourself out of the individual interaction with this one person and look at it from a larger context and say, okay, I know there are people out there in the world who believe these things. I don't like it, but I know it. And I'm able to maintain emotional composure while aware of that fact. I know that some of the talking points of this group are this, this, and this. I don't like those talking points, but I'm still able to maintain emotional composure while thinking about those talking points. So the fact that I'm about to see those same talking points appear on my phone screen in a, in a Facebook chat with someone doesn't make it any worse. The fact that one of those people who I already knew existed is currently right here doesn't make it any worse, right? So try to use that zoomed out global perspective when you're about to enter into a conversation you know is gonna to be tough. It helps you know, keep the emotional reactions to a minimum. Uh, final preparation step is I would recommend you spend a little bit of time before you start with this, thinking about what identity you wanna have and what role you wanna play in your online interactions, right? Do you wanna be the guy who dishes out the sassiest insults? Do you want to be the person who is the patient, kind, empathetic, calm one? Do you want to be the one who like has all the data and all the facts and just drowns people in facts? Do you want to be the one who plays the devil's advocate constantly? Like, what is that role you want to play online? Um, because this helps with behavior change. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. And one of the things he talks about in his book is when you're starting a new habit, don't decide what you're going to do. Focus on who you want to be. Don't commit to, I will run three times a week. That eats up a lot of emotional energy and resolve and determination and commitment, right? That's a finite resource and it eats it up. And when you fail, you end up kind of getting stuck in the shame spiral. Rather, focus your attention on, I am a runner. So 
I don't know when I'm going to run, but I'm sure I'll run a lot because I'm a runner and that's what we do. And it eats up less emotional energy that way. And when you mess up, you don't drown as much shame. You say, okay, well, let's just, you know, fix it. Right. Cause I'm a runner and that's what I do. So similarly, rather than setting up these rules for yourself of do and don't online, just really focus on who you want to be. Um, for inspiration, I recommend three TED Talks. These will be linked to a resource we share after this, so don't feel like you have to remember them, but three TED Talks. One is Daryl Davis, the guy who you know uh, attends KKK rallies as a black man. One is Christian Picciolini, who helps extremists leave their extremist movements, particularly right-wing extremists in the U.S. And the other is Megan Phelps Roper, talking about what it took for her to leave the Westboro Baptist Church. And newsflash, right, or surprise, spoiler alert, it wasn't people hitting them with the truth and punching Nazis with their words. It wasn't people telling Megan she was evil, awful, hateful, and bigoted. It wasn't any of those things, right? So when you listen to those TED Talks, you'll find role models of, hey, I want to be like that, right? I've, I've joked with my wife that I could even get like one of those little bracelets that says WWDDD, what would Daryl Davis do that I can look at every time I'm talking to someone online, right? So focus on who you want to be and the role you want to have. You'll find it a little easier to stick to this you know, new regimen of kindness, patience, and empathy when it's difficult. All right. Now, during the conversation, what do we want to do during the conversation? Well, I think the mantra that should be running through your head the entire time while you're having this conversation is seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think that's a Dale Carnegie quote. Certainly somebody smarter than me said it first. And that is crucially important that you really, really understand this person, right? Understanding to the point where you actually understand how it is they came to see themselves as a good guy and how they came to see your side as the bad guys. You've got to get to that point. And there's two reasons you got to get to that point. One is because when people enter these conversations, they have their emotional armor up, their brain and mind is closed off. There is not a thing you can say which will ever penetrate their worldview, right? Their defenses are high. And the only way to get them to lower those defenses is to make them feel like first they have been truly seen heard and understood. Not just you let them talk first and then you talked, right? But you really took the time to understand where they're coming from, how they got to this point in a non-judgmental way to get to the point where you understand how they think they're the good guy. When you get to that level, the barriers come down, the armor comes down, and then you have a, a prayer and a chance at planting a new thought in their mind and giving them an alternate worldview. Um, the second reason is you won't actually be able to craft an effective argument until you really understand their worldview. One thing I've learned from these conversations is that when I get in these conversations with people I disagree with, I always think we're going to disagree on these points here, but it's never the case. We usually are actually in perfect alignment at these points here. It's these points over here where we really disagree. And now that I know that, now I can supply them with the correct side of the diamond to help give them a new way of thinking. But if you don't really take that level of understanding, all the arguments you throw against them will be arguing against the wrong stuff, right? And it won't, it won't help. So seek first to understand, then to be understood. The next thing, which is kind of a mental mindset shift, is you really have to look at the person you're talking to with pity. Pity is powerful in these situations because understand whatever bad behavior or bad opinions or bad thoughts that these people are spewing at you, there's generally something that's happened in their life that's led them there, which is not a great thing. Now, the best examples of this are true white supremacists, extremists, right? Neo-Nazis, the people that Christian Picciolini helps, you know, leave uh, these groups. They're the ones that typically have really, really rough stories that led them down this path, right? Dylan Roof is even a decent example. That poor guy had absolutely no one in his life that cared about him or that he was connected to at all until he joined Stormfront. Once he joined Stormfront, he found people online who listened to him, who valued him, who cared about him, who supported him, who talked to him. And he found community and support on Stormfront he had never experienced in his entire life, which is why he completely lost himself 
right in that place. That's why it only took eight months to turn him into a cold-blooded murderer because of how desperately his emotional needs weren't being met and Stormfront was the one place that met those needs. So try to, again, that's an extreme example, right? No, no, hopefully none of us talked to someone like that, but understand that whatever roadblocks got in someone's life that sent them down this path, you should pity them for that. And there are even less extreme examples, right? Let's say you're on LinkedIn and you talk to some upper middle-class 55-year-old white guy who just freaking doesn't get it, right? Plenty of those out there. You know, think to yourself, so what kind of life would you have had to live to have such a narrow view on things? And this white supremacist mindset that has indoctrinated all of us has clearly completely and utterly taken hold of this person and they don't even realize it, right? There should be some pity in that. It actually feels very similar to me to how a lot of people are willing to show compassion and pity to people who have addictions, right? Yes, we know it was some of their own bad choices that led them down this path, but now that they're in this bad place, rather than just showing anger and contempt and telling them everything they did wrong in their life that got them there and just all the things they're doing wrong right now and how broken and messed up they are, how about we have compassion and pity for people who are struggling with addictions? The same mindset can be applied to people who are suffering from these mental dysfunctions with that are white supremacy and racism, right? These are dysfunctions of the mind and the way the mind is not operating correctly and biases have worked themselves in there so deeply the person can't even see they're there. Have some pity for them. See them as someone who needs to be helped rather than someone who needs to be attacked. Right. All right, this one's a little bit more simple and tactical. You could put a little post-it note on your wall with this if you needed to. Never say the first thing that comes to mind. Just don't. Whatever it is, it's not going to be good. <laughs> Backspace it. Don't type it. Don't even say it. Throw out the first thing that comes to mind and think of something entirely different to say you'll do better on your second try. Similar to that, never stop at the first theory that comes to mind to explain someone's behavior. Again, here's my leftist perspective showing, but I'll be online and I'll see someone and go, oh my God, can you believe what they said? They must be a racist, bigoted, ignorant, homophobic, small-minded, inbred, hillbilly. They're the worst type of person ever, right? And that's my theory to explain what they just said. Always throw that first theory out. Look for another theory that would explain what they just said. That's a little more gracious, right? A little more forgiving to them to explain how they got there. And I'm telling you, your second theory is always gonna be more accurate and more helpful than your first theory. Um, another simple mind trick here um, is remember that, you know, diamond of reality that has many different facets, right? Just take some time before the conversation or even during the conversation and remember that you haven't seen every surface of the diamond. There are aspects of reality and the truth that you've never run across before that haven't occurred to you that aren't part of the existing worldview. Now, from your perspective, you've probably got 90% of that diamond figured out. There's only small pieces you're missing. And from your perspective, that other person is maybe got like 3% of that diamond figured out and the rest of it is all just misinformation and lies. But still recognize, you know, some of the truth that they've seen and that they're aware of may be an aspect of reality that I've actually never seen before and never appreciated before. So approach every conversation almost like, I don't know, a scavenger hunt where you're trying to get a more perfect view of reality and you understand that every person out there has something they can share with you that'll give you a more perfect view of reality. This mindset will give you natural curiosity. Right. I've said a lot today, but I would summarize it that these conversations should be led with empathy and curiosity. Those are the two linchpins to having conversations well, right? You get the empathy piece from pity and you get the curiosity piece from realizing that everyone has a piece of the truth and they may have a piece you don't have. 98% of what they're spouting at you might be bullcrap. There's something in there that you can learn and you should really keep your eyes and ears open for what that thing is. That'll give you the natural curiosity to lead the conversation well and get to that point of understanding that I talked about, right? That point of understanding where they've let their guard down and real discourse can happen. 
All right, last thing I have to share, it's kind of two things. Um, it's just around the language you use because even being in the right headspace, it's really hard to say things that don't sound argumentative and debate style and angry because even when you throw out the first thing you wanna say, the second thing you wanna say, oftentimes, is still pretty charged, right? You know, if it's a if it's in a Facebook comment, maybe you can walk away for 15 minutes and try again. If it's a live conversation like I do on my podcast, you just got to say something. So one trick I've learned that's fairly easy to adopt is don't use language about absolute truth and reality. Use language about your perspective, your experience, your views, right? So don't say that's idiotic. Say, I can't understand that right? Don't say you're disrespectful. Say, I feel disrespected, right? Don't say, you know, that that's, uh, that's wrong. Say, that hasn't been my experience. And partially, part of the reason you do that is just so that the other person doesn't get worked up, right? And in these conversations, we tend to mirror off each other. And a lot of times when it comes to signs of aggression or passive aggression, we tend to one-up each other and work ourselves up into a frenzy. And this language about that hasn't been my experience makes it easy for the other person to stay calm. But here's the other thing I've thought about. When you make a statement about reality, that's not the way it works. They are forced to respond to that, which means they either have to accept it and say, okay, you're right. Or they have to reject it and say, no, you're wrong. Both in their head and kind of verbally too, they have to do something with it, right? They have to do something with that claim because their worldview and that claim cannot coexist. One has to be true, one has to be false. So they got to kick one out and it's going to be your statement that gets kicked out and their worldview is left intact. However, when you say something like, that hasn't been my experience, that can coexist with their worldview. They can be right, and that could not have been your experience. They aren't forced to make a decision of what to do with that right away. So it allows that thought to just sit there and simmer just a little longer before they deal with it, right? It allows that perspective. It's almost like they can try it on for size and see what they think of that perspective. And if they don't like it, they can put it away and go back to their old perspective, but they're able to really engage with it. Where when you drop it down and lay it down as absolute truth, they really don't have that chance. They have to either say, yes, you're right or no, you're wrong. And that's it. So use language about I, my experience, what the way it seems to me, the way I feel, right? That way you're still able to say what needs to be said, but again, in a more effective way. Uh, very similar to that is a, a line I learned from Brene Brown. This is like your heavy duty line when you are just pulling your hair out going, oh my God, I cannot even think of a single polite way to say this. I just like, oh my God, I have nothing nice to say here. Is say what you need to say as kindly as you can, but preface it with the phrase, the story I'm making up in my head or the story I'm telling myself is, and then you can more or less lay it out the way it appears to you, even if it is a little hard to say and very hard for them to hear. By prefacing it with that, the story I'm telling myself is, again, it allows them to take it, look at it, observe it. They don't have to fight against it. It is no direct threat to them. You're just saying, this is my perspective. And they can look at it and they can help correct you where you're wrong. And they can you know, maybe advance their story to you that they're telling in their head. And you guys can kind of compare stories. But real dialogue and you know, real shuffling can, can happen and real rumbling can happen. Whereas if you just say, this is the way it is, again, they have to respond and either say you're right or you're wrong. And usually things get ugly from there. So the story I'm telling myself is a fantastic line. So thank you so much, John. That <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I have to share. Wow. Yeah. So much, so, so many the, great comments in the chat. Yeah. It's great. Um, if we could get to the Q and A now, that would be fantastic. We just have so much to get to. Everybody's got great questions. So um 
one of the questions that came through is uh, in the two sides of news sources, there is solid data about how factual the output is as there was with Trump's speeches, they were full of lies. How do you respect anyone who doesn't try to discern fact from lie? What's hard about this is that, you know, when you talk to someone with different viewpoints, they oftentimes have facts and information that you are missing, right? Which, so one of the interesting things, so in the comments, Jeff mentioned that he did a three hour conversation with a Trump supporter, right? There was a lot of information that she shared that he wasn't aware of, right? So that is one of those interesting things where there's so much true information out there that kind of conflicts or at least paints different pictures, even if they don't directly contradict each other, they paint different pictures. I don't think it's as simple as people think, right? It's not as simple as I present you with this fact, unless you can prove this fact is wrong, you have to come over to my worldview. It's not that simple because they can also present you with a fact and present the same thing, right? Again, many-sided diamond, right? right? So, you know, it is tough because some people refuse to acknowledge the validity of any piece of truth they don't like. And it's very okay. hard to interact with those people, right? Um, but you do just have to realize that simply preventing some, presenting somebody with one piece of evidence that supports your view isn't enough, right? Because truth is, there's a lot of facts out there which paint very different pictures of the world. And you have to make sure you're as open to recognize the validity of their facts as you're asking them to be to recognize the validity of yours. Wow, that was great. Um, I know that Anne has a question as well. Anne, if you want to go ahead and verbalize that. Jonathan, thanks so much for everything you said. Um, folks, I'm gonna offer a content warning. I just wanna um, ask you a question based on my own personal experience. Um, I am an incest survivor and um, found that, you know, I grew up in a very Catholic home and empathy was taught to me in order to continue to um, receive abusive behavior. And so a huge part of my healing process was learning boundaries, right? Was learning to block people. was learning not to spend time with people. Um, and so I now I'm very safe. I have a safe community. My family sided with my perpetrator when I came out with my story. Um, and now as an advocate, I certainly understand ideologically what you're saying about like, as a survivor, I shouldn't be expected to do advocacy work or to change people um, but also incest is, continues to be a taboo subject. Children continue to be unsafe. Um, and the last thing I wanna be is a white complacent person who doesn't protect the next generation. And so I know the impact this work has on my nervous system <laughs> and I'm choosing it anyway, in any way that I can as a survivor. Um, I do not, I continue to not speak to my family, but I do engage people who I think are uh, safe enough, right? Like their ideologies not, might not be safe. Um, they might have ideas that help perpetrate be, perpetrated behavior, um, but they are safe enough for me to be around. So I'm just curious, like how we, from your standpoint, how we break, how we encourage empathy, but also encourage boundaries and, and encourage breaking abuse cycles, because I see this on macro levels. I see too much forgiveness talk, too much empathy talk, and not enough boundary justice accountability talk, um, which really puts a lot of pressure on victims to continue to um, kind of uh, experience abuse while 
you know, perpetrators just continue to perpetrate. So I know my, my story is complex, but I wanted to bring it to the table and ask you as an expert, what you think. I'm probably the least qualified person in this entire Zoom room to answer that question. Um, I am a straight, cis, white male with no uh, abuse, trauma, anything like literally every advantage a person can have in life, I have, um, which is why I'm so passionate about this work, right? It's my goal that folks who have suffered the most from these things can kind of sit back and rest, relax, and heal. And those of us who haven't suffered as much from any of these things are the ones who take the lead on this. But the reverse is happening, right? The reverse is happening where people who haven't personally suffered from these things just move on and ignore it because it's easier. And then the buck has to stop with people like you who have suffered from it who have to then manage simultaneously handling their own healing while also doing this, like, come on. So I don't think I have an answer for you. You know, other people here who have maybe found that balance, right, of being victimized by something and staying up against it, maybe give you a better answer. Um, you know, I would say uh, for those of you, you know, who aren't affected, right, take up a stand. Um, and for those of you who are affected, do your best, right? Like it's kind of like exercising a muscle, right? You kind of figure out just how much you can do before it's too much and you got to step back. Um, but unfortunately I don't have an answer for that. I can make shit up, but truth is I have no experience with that. So I'm not qualified to answer. Yeah, actually, um, Elena said accountability needs to be a part of the conversation. Thank you for sharing. And Gloria says, uh, she'd like to add to the question verbally. So if you want to take yourself off mute, Gloria, and, and add some, uh, some experience yes, like and I'm talking to you from Australia. So my accent will be quite different to you all in back in US. But please, um, yeah, just hear me out. So I really like what Jonathan said about quiet people who have not been um, subject to oppression to take the lead in this space. I think that is fantastic and I really like your lead in this space. I have got a meeting with you I think tomorrow and I'm looking forward to it at 10 o'clock my time. But what I wanted to add to Anne's um, question and it's really important for you white folks who have not um, experience oppression but really wanting to lead this talk is that it's also it will be um, quite useful to engage with those that have been um, oppressed so that your information is very much informed um, and not to occupy those spaces and not invite those people in because what that does is it, it, you, you're already leading in so many spaces and then you're leading in this space without in consultation with those victims or the, those people that have been through this historically. So it's really important that you work in conjunction with them side by side and not take this space entirely because that's what's been happening historically and it makes it very difficult for us to have a voice in the conversation so just being aware of that is i think is really really important but it's, it's great work that you're doing jonathan and you know i'm right here down under and and um i i see the work you do and i really want to be part of it it's great Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, 
We just have uh, one more thing we'd like to get to. And then John, I wanted to ask you, there are so many questions that we didn't get the opportunity to address. Is this something that you'd be willing to do possibly in Slack if we throw it in there? Um, would you be willing to, to kind of answer those questions in that forum? Slowly but surely I'll get through them. <laughs> okay, great, great. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to thank everybody, first of all, John, for the fantastic job that you did talking to all of us about how to have these really tough conversations. I think that, you know, not only are we having these in social media, it certainly impacts uh, our families, our communities, you know, we're having tough conversations everywhere we go. Um, so these tip tips and tactics are really important. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the chat, uh, John has a resource and uh, we are going to uh, make sure that that's provided to you um, via the Slack session as well. And then we're gonna throw some of the unanswered questions into the Slack chat too. Um, Sejal has her hand up for a quick question before we close out. Yeah, no, I just wanted to make a comment. You know, this conversation was so hard, right? We've all been there. And I just have to give it up for Jonathan again. Thank you so much. That was so informative. I heard things in your talk that I haven't heard before. So, and I've been doing a lot of work on this area this past couple of years, right? But I also wanna point out that Jonathan has a very unique perspective. So he's part of another group as well called the Anti-Racist Coalition. And he's got a group of you know white individuals who want to fight anti-racism where he's got black consultants that are sort of mentors that he's turning to for advice on how to have these conversations but some of the work that he's doing i mean with regards to some of the conversations involving white folks i mean i have to say we need more allies like this we need more people that can do this work that can have their conversations so for anybody here that is wanting to learn this and wanting to do more a part of this, reach out to Jonathan because he's got this huge thing going on and I'm a part of that as well. And I just I just kind of threw myself in that group because obviously it's, it's a group for white people and I just said, I'm joining the group, I don't care. I wanna do this work with you. So anybody that wants to join that, please reach out to him. Like he's doing some amazing work and we need more white allies. No matter how we slice and dice this, we're all together. We can't do it without each other. So let's hold hands as we move forward. So if you want to be a part of our journey and help us make a positive impact, please let us know. We'd love to welcome your different perspectives from any backgrounds. Bring your stories and let's, let's figure out how to do this together. We don't know the answer. We don't have the answer. We can all figure it out together, though. So thank you again, everyone, for being a part of this with us. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, so thank you again, everyone, so much for coming to today's session. Again, there are so many resources that we have for you. So let me uh, spell those out because it's been going back and forth a little bit. So if you want to listen to the audio recording of this, this will be available on the Leading People First podcast. Feel free to share it the moment it comes out. We will post both in the LinkedIn event and our lead LinkedIn group when that goes live. Um, thank you. Feel free to follow Jonathan and anyone on the lead admin team. That would be myself, Yvonne, Sarah Phelps, Sajel Thacker, and John Carlson, as well as Joseph Motes. We are all, uh, the six of us are all working on this group. So feel free to reach out to us, any of us, if you have any questions. If you have any additional questions for Jonathan, please send them out to us. We are happy to lump them in and we will 
be sure to get an answer to you as soon as possible. On top of the lead group on LinkedIn, we also have a Slack channel. Um, we will be sending out an email after this call, probably in the next 24 hours, linking that Slack channel for you to join the conversation. Uh, much more lighthearted, much, uh, uh, just a place for you to be able to have a conversation, ask questions in a safe space, and we are happy to have you there. Um, I believe that is it. Thank you again. We are doing this every Thursday evening, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. We are happy to have you join. Tell your friends, tell your family that this is an amazing place to get educated, to learn, and to have conversation. And thank you so much for being part of the Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity group. Thank you again and have a great night.